You're listening to Wolf in Tune, and you're listening to me right now, Richard Wolfie Wolf. So today we're talking to Frank MDS. He's a combination of several things that resonate with me particularly. He is a professor of music. He is also a mindfulness teacher and a Zen Buddhist uh, I call him a Zen Buddhist master. He calls himself a Zen Buddhist, a recognized Zen Buddhist teacher. And he's also a musician. He plays the uh, trombone and the double bass, and he also is a conductor. So his official title is Director of the Institute for Mindfulness-Based Wellness and Pedagogy. And uh, he's a professor at the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. It's interesting that he got his PhD in cognitive psychology. We talk about music, Zen, and the don't know mind, and the uncertainty of living in a pandemic. The default neural network, measuring mindfulness is actually a test that you take to measure mindfulness, and a lot of other cool related stuff. By the way, you should know that this episode was recorded before the murder of George Floyd and the popular uprising that ensued. You know, sometimes people have a misunderstanding that mindfulness is just about working on yourself. That's a big part of it. Yes, it is. But it's also engaging with society, trying to do the right thing, trying to express your compassion for others and trying to correct injustice because that comes from your recognition that we are all interconnected, that we are actually different expressions of the same energy. One thing that I am particularly passionate about is bringing music and mindfulness education to the most underserved communities. I was looking very much forward. We have a program with the terrific I Have a Dream Foundation to bring music and mindfulness education to all their dreamers. And we were all ready to kick it off when the virus hit. So I'm really looking forward to the schools opening again when we can put that program into operation. But now, let's get started with Frank Diaz. Welcome, Frank Diaz, to the Wolf in Tune podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to, uh, I'm not seeing you, but great to hear you. And we haven't spoken for a long time. First of all, I got to ask you permission for something. Can sure. I call you, I know you're not going to like this, but can I call you Dr. Frank Diaz? No. See, I, 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 absolutely not. Hold, hold on one second. Let me just explain. <laughs> you know, I, you are a PhD, right? So you're a doctor of philosophy, is that right? That is, that is correct, yes. Okay, so if I get to call you Dr. Frank Diaz, it looks good on the, you know, the podcast you know, <laughs> summaries. It, it looks more legitimate. Well, I, it looks leg legitimate, but, you know, we all know. You know, we all know what PhD can stand for, so. I don't know, what? Oh, I think someone told me uh, piled high and deep, but I don't know what that means. <laughs> That's a good one. I haven't heard that. So I don't have to worry about it going to your head if no. I call you a doctor. Okay. No, I don't think so. <laughs> anyway, it's great to see you. We haven't spoken really since I think we spoke the first, uh, in the middle of March when the, the outbreak was just starting to take shape, right? That is correct. I'm trying to remember when it was I was in California, and that sounds about right. Well, we spoke after that. Oh, right? yeah, we did. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, so we spoke in March. Yeah, right as it was, because we were supposed to speak pretty close to when the whole thing blew up, and uh, and then we couldn't for a while. So, yeah. And so, how you been since since then? 
<laughs> Dep- depends on the day. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mm. think, uh, I think like everyone I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm learning how to work with this, uh, on a day-to-day basis. Uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, Zen prepares you sort of, uh, to, to enter the unknown and, you know, sort of, you're always in don't know mind. That's part of my practice. And that's all great when you know stuff is going to happen, right? You know, don't know mind when you know when things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's probably not too bad. But when it really happens like it does right now, it's 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 really difficult practice. So I would say I would say I'm I'm hanging in there. There are some things that are really wonderful about this, some things that are really difficult. Um, but but like anyone else, I think what's the biggest struggle right now is just the the significant uncertainty. We just, you know, we really we're on in chart, uncharted territory here, so it's hard for all of us. Yeah. Our thinking minds are are really struggling right now. Our predictive minds are really struggling right now with the loss of control and the inability to make the world or shape the world the way that we want it to be. So that. So how do you find on the, on both sides, first of all, how do you find the Zen? You have a Zen practice and I, I mentioned now, and we'll be talking about it in greater detail, but you are sure. a certified <laughs> Zen master. <laughs> well, and I don't know. It, that I comes know after the, master. <laughs> that comes after the PhD, right? Well, you're a Zen teacher. <laughs> yes, I'm a Zen teacher. That is correct. And very deeply steeped in the Zen teachings and practice. Um, so, how do you find the Zen practices helping at this time? Well, yeah, it's similar to what I said before. I, I, you know, th- this is what you prepare for, right? So, you know, one one way to look at Zen is that you are completely intimate with the present moment with reality as it is so you work through through sitting meditation through koan work through everyday life you know through readings you work on on lifting this veil of delusion that we have about what the world should be uh you know permanent always pleasing us serving our egos and uh and you work through all these different modalities to come to terms with the fact that the world isn't like that and so right now, Zen practice for me is very much about coming back to this attitude of mind of th- this is it. Um, and the way that it helps me is, is that it brings that attitude to, to the reality that, you know, I don't know if I'm going to be here tomorrow. I don't know what my life is going to look like. I, I can't really control a lot of things. So what do I have right now? Well, I have this moment. I have this breath. I have this environment. What am I doing with this? What, what kind of quality of relationship do I have with my experience right now? And what you find is that, you know, no matter what the quality is, whether things are going the way you want them to, whether you're sick, whether you're, you're healthy, whether you're, you know, whatever the situation is, you're here. So you have some, some ability to relate to it. And, and that's a blessing because the alternative to that is you're dead. Right. Um, so at least we're alive, at least right now, at this moment. So what are we going to do with that moment? And I think that th- there's some comfort in that. And in this moment, there's also opportunity, right? Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, that that's the other side. And uh, I, I, I don't think we've spoken about this before, but, you know, I, I lead a Sangha here, a community of Buddhist practitioners. We've been online and uh, we've been meeting sort of through Zoom. It's been very interesting and I've been giving Dharma talks. And uh, many of the Dharma talks have revolved around this issue of what are we missing here? You know, what's the opportunity here? What are some things that can change that should change? And, and how is the virus sort of a koan for us? 
something to work with that um, that reveals uh, how we're stuck in thinking about life and the world and you know society uh, in a particular way. And so, yeah, th- I mean, there's good things about this too. I've never I've never walked my neighborhood as much as I have recently. Um, you know, I just it's spring here in Indiana, and uh, and then the fall. I mean, it's just beautiful flowers and. And mm-hmm. trees are green and, and the weather's beautiful and you just walk around and you go, I've been, you know, this is my fourth year here and I haven't, I haven't seen these things. I mean, really seen them for what they are. And mm-hmm. there's a kind of beauty in that. There's an opportunity in there to rethink things and shift how we uh, relate to everything. Yeah, I think that's really, I don't know what to call it, mind-blowing to, to look at the virus as a koan, which is kind of a riddle which within it has an answer or a multiplicity of answers. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or reveals how we're stuck. And, right. You know, primarily, right. You know, right. Koans are really great at trapping us and, right. and, and, Oh, here's what I think the answer is. Right. Uh, and these folks were clever enough to devise these little stories, whether they're true, historically accurate or not, or based on something to, to make us realize that there's more, more than one perspective here. And we're probably stuck on one. And we're not seeing something. So, yeah, I, I really think of it as a koan in, in a lot of ways. And also Zen teaches you that everything is impermanent, right? That's kind of the basic, one of yeah. the noble truths, right? Everything is impermanent. <laughs> everything is always changing. So yeah. within the change, there's good or bad. If you recognize good or bad, there's yeah. both. And uh, people tend to, you know, hang on to, to grasp onto the negative Whereas it's both, there's balance there, right? In the change. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, but I think that's fundamentally one of the, one of the things that all Buddhists uh, or Buddhist practitioners, whether they happen to be, you know, aligned with a particular school of Buddhism or whether they happen to be just philosophically sympathetic to Buddhism, you know, sort of the whole modernist secular Buddhist movement is the idea that why? Yeah. You know, things are impermanent. And so it's what the Buddha realized and i desperately want them to be permanent (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i suffer because i'm trying to turn something that's impermanent into something permanent uh and and yeah all of us are impermanent right this experience is impermanent this virus is impermanent yeah uh all of it is and and, you know that it it takes quite a bit of practice and and um a little bit of pain too to deal with this but you're right about the beauty and the I love that you mentioned that, you know, in any given situation, depending upon what part of that refraction you're looking at, you're going to see some beauty and you're going to see some darkness and, and our beauty is somebody else's darkness and vice versa. All right. So, so how do you, aside from reading and recognizing that we are prisoners of our own thinking, how do you train for uncertainty or is that the only way to do it? I mean, mm. what, what methods do we use to train, to deal with um, insecurity, and to recognize that insecurity underlies all of life, yeah. and that it's there's wisdom in, as Alan Watts said, wisdom in insecurity. Yeah. I, mean, I think of um, there's a, a Tibetan master who I think is Trungpa Rinpoche. I think. Yeah, that's right. I think he said that the good news, the bad news, is that we're falling through the air. But the good news is that there's no ground to crash into. <laughs> that's that's a that's really wonderfully put. So yeah. if everything is groundless, then you know you're not going to be able to find your footing on a on a permanent basis. Yeah, yeah, right. Once you let go, you, you kind of you kind of realize, uh, you know, this is what it is. 
And, you know, and it, that doesn't mean, I think another point here to sort of um, bring up, which I think ties to Zen and sometimes uh, to people who do mindfulness practices, you know, there's this, this kind of, um, uh, you know, story out there or kind of debate that, that, that it's about uh, detachment, right? Like you give up, but it's not detachment. It's non-attachment. Two very different concepts. When we're not attached to something, we see it for what it is. Uh, we still live our lives and we do the best we can and we plan and we do all the things that humans do, but we're not attached to the outcome because we realize that all outcomes are impermanent to some degree or the other. Nothing stays the same. And also that we have limited control over a lot. Um, and that doesn't mean you don't try. It doesn't mean that you don't that you don't uh, suffer when, when things don't go the way you are. It's part of being a human being, but you, but you hold it lightly. I think that's a beautiful way, the way Trungpa talked about that. I think that's exactly right. There was never any ground to begin with. There was never any ground. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we just think it's there. It makes a part of us, re you know, feel safe. Um, and then one day you grow up a little bit. I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah the The universe keeps expanding. It, it isn't there where it was yesterday. And, no. <laughs> and all, everything within it is moving and always in motion. So there is yeah. no permanent ground, right? Nothing there is to, no permanent ground. No, it's exactly. like Bob Dylan said, there's nothing, Ma, there's nothing to live up to. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. You do a really wonderful job of taking uh, Zen and Buddhist thought and meditation and, and uh, finding musicians that have spoken similar sentiments. So I love about your book. It's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a little Zen in all these guys, a little, a little Buddhism, a, a little mindfulness in all the folks that you talk about in your book. And I think that's great because I think musicians have some kind of I don't know, at least I've met a lot of musicians that have some kind of insight into this process. Because music is like that. I mean, music is very much uh, uh, an in-the-moment art form. Mm -hmm. uh, you can only experience it in the moment. It's a recording of a momentary thing for the most part. Um, it's temporal. It doesn't, you know, it's a temporal art form. It doesn't stay static. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot, I think, if you look deeply into that, yeah, you know, that, that reflects that idea or that experience. I never thought of that. That, that music is temporal and impermanent like that, yeah, as opposed to, say, a painting or a sculpture or a film. Yeah. Yeah. And, and talk more about the relationship between, I mean, you, you've thought very deeply about this, uh, the relationship between music, meditation, mindfulness. Yeah. So I've got to say, I mean, I think one of the things that I really enjoy about our conversations and, and, and I think um, our interactions and the you know, talk we gave together is that like you, I, I, you know, you, you and your book, you talk about the processes involved in meditation are the same processes that are involved in, in making music, right? I mean, they're, they're really like if you, if you step back and you get away from the object of music itself or the object of art or the object of the breath or whatever it is that we're attending to, being mindful or being present or meditating, um, those psychological processes are incredibly similar, if not exactly the same in many ways. Uh, and I mean meditation and, and making music um, and even listening to music, right? So you gather your attention, you keep awareness of the broader whole, you engage with all your senses, not just your ear, right? When you have, yeah. you, when you have a musical experience, it's more than just listening, it's conceptual, it's auditory. If you have synesthesia, you know, you can have all sorts of really wonderful experiences. Mm -hmm. um, you try to let go, uh, at least in some instances, of things that get in the way of that perceptual flaw when you're making or listening to music, which is part of meditation too. 
but you're also open and curious and creative and, and seeing where things take you. I mean, why do we listen to the same symphony a thousand times? I can't tell you the number of times I've listened to Mahler one or, you know, or, or the Beatles Blackbird. And every time I have a different experience, there's something about the experience that's the same. But if I hold it, if I, if I, if I use it as an object of focus and, and an object of intimacy in my experience, it evokes so many different things. So I think, I mean, often it tells me exactly what mood I'm in or what I'm thinking, right? I, 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 that song Blackbird by the Beatles, which I, I just love, you know, I, I could listen to that. And, um, and every time I listen to it, it, it just basically reflects back what I'm experiencing at that moment in so many ways. Sometimes it's poignant, sometimes it's sad, sometimes it's happy. And that's what you're doing in meditation. You're bringing full awareness to that moment. What's happening now? Am I being honest with myself? Hmm. Wow. Never thought of that either. Yeah. And I think obviously there's going to be some things that are more likely to cause certain reactions or influence certain reactions in people. I mean, you've sat in a room with musicians and asked everybody what they think of whatever it is that you're listening to. Mm -hmm. And you get a myriad of responses. Right. right. You get so many responses. And, you know, and I'm in the field of music psychology. I do perception and cognition studies. And, you know, and sometimes I laugh a little bit at myself where I'm thinking, what am I going to find out that everybody is going to have in common <laughs> when they're listening to this? And so, yeah, you can speak up about generalities, you know, like experiences of awe and experiences of, of, of intense focus or flow and things like that, aesthetic experiences. Um, but but it's really difficult to get to the, you know, the nuance of each of those experiences, because those are just so individualized. And again, that's meditation, right? Meditation is a process. It's a way of engaging with what's already there uh, that gives you insight into your own experience, which is all you have, by the way. You only have your own experience, all of us do. And then we share it symbolically with each other through speaking. That's a, that's a damn miracle in and of itself. You know, you just mentioned uh, a few minutes ago uh, your background in psychology. I want to get back to that. Sure. But uh, first we have to establish, you're a conductor, right? Yeah, that's that's my main, that's one of my main out, outputs as a musician, yes. And you play the tuba? No, I play the, the double bass and the trombone. Oh, the trombone. Okay, I, I'm mixing you up with another tuba player that I have a <laughs> podcast with. Can you play Blackbird on the trombone? Uh, I mean, I could, but I don't, I mean, that would just be a, I think that would be a defiling it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what do you prefer, the trombone or the double bass? Oh, Everybody it's... wants to know this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. You know, I, it just depends. I think when I'm playing jazz, I, I love the double bass. There's just something that, you know, it's kind of where my roots are. Um, I learned uh, a lot of jazz as a kid. I grew up in Miami. Uh, there was a lot of jazz and salsa and, and Latin pop music and things like that that I grew up listening to. So the bass was just something I... I became, uh, I was gravitate, I gravitated to. So I really enjoy playing jazz and pop and rock mm. and funk on bass. You know, for sure. classical, I enjoy the trombone specifically for, for symphonic music. Wait a uh, second, yeah. on the Latin jazz, so is it sure. like Eddie Palmieri? Oh, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's oh, I love certainly this. someone I can think of. Yeah. Tito yeah. Puente? Tito Puente. I mean, there's just so many amazing musicians. And, you know, there were a lot, there's a lot of music going on in my house growing up. My dad loved just listening to such a wide variety of, I would say Latin music, but yeah, but we also liked the Beatles, which all I found fascinating. You know, we're Cuban immigrants and my dad, you know, got here in his twenties. You know, he always spoke with a heavy accent, but it was fascinating when he sang Beatles songs, his accent went completely away. So, you know, here's dad 
speaking to me. And all of a sudden he sings, you know, a Beatles tune, which he loved the Beatles. And he, and he you know, he sounds like, you know, like, like John Lennon all of a sudden. It's like, how'd that happen? Yeah, that's amazing. You know, you, you it's like the English, like the Rolling Stones. Yeah. You know, they would sing songs and they sounded like they were from the Mississippi Delta. I know. And, right? And then the interviews, they sound, you know, with their Cockney accents. I don't know if they're Cockney or whatever, but that is amazing how that happens. It is fascinating, yeah. So you, I said I was going to circle back to the, the psychology stuff. Sure. And you have a background in neuroscience, correct? Uh, I would say cognitive psychology more than neuroscience. Um, I, I try to be fair about that. You know, neuroscientists are, it's a very specialized field. You know, of course, you learn some neuroscience as a cognitive psychologist if you're, you know, if you're reading broadly and trying to connect the pieces. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I have some understanding of that field. I wouldn't call myself a neuroscientist, though. I would say I'm more of a cognitive psychologist in terms of my academic uh, inclinations as a researcher. So do you are you familiar with the changes in the brain that are engendered by music on one hand and meditation on the other hand? Boy, what a great question. So, you know, you would think that people uh, have looked at this at some level of depth. And, and the reality is there really isn't, not to my knowledge, a lot of really good data on that. Mm -hmm. We know that the cog, actually part of what I do, part of what I study is, uh, you know, what are the cognitive processes involved in meditation, right? What are they? Can we pinpoint them? Do they have uh, neuroscientific correlates? In other words, if we're going to talk about focused attention, and a person experiences focused attention during meditation, you know, whatever, however we might call it, you know, are you going to see uh, a change in areas of the brain, some kind of change that would indicate that uh, this focused attention is similar to what a neuroscientist might see in a brain focusing on any object. And so I have to assume that on some level, you know, attending to music and, and the way that uh, these, these uh, brain networks combine to have a musical experience, I would have to assume that they would not be that much different uh, uh, between meditation and making music. And actually, uh, I, I spoke to uh, Cliff Saren, who is um, a really fantastic researcher, uh, leads the Shamata Project down in California and uh, is a contemporary of Richard Davidson. The two guys really worked hand in hand to, to bring this field to life, neuroscience and, mm -hmm. and meditation. Shamata and meaning concentration. Correct. Yes. And, uh, you know, Cliff's wife is a, a cellist in the San Francisco Symphony, and they do these really interesting uh, seminars down in, uh, uh, I always want to say Esalen, Esalen. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I think it's Esalen. Uh, they do a workshop on music and, and uh, meditation. And, you know, in our conversations, we talk, we've talked about that before. You know, are the, are the processes essentially the same? Um, and I think they are uh, in many ways. But, you know, I don't have any, any clear neuroscientific data to say, yeah, they're the same. Because the reality is, man, I mean, and I, I might make some neuroscientists mad here, you know, neuroscience is such a new field and we're still struggling with that. We, we you know, we don't know what, how experience correlates to specific networks or regions or, you know, that's still all being developed. We know a lot, but I, I think we have to be really humble and realizing that this complex piece of meat in our skull is just much richer, more nuanced in terms of how it functions and it relates to experience than maybe we we're ready to understand at this moment. Yeah, it's there's a controversy here because when you speak to neuroscientists, they're very cautious about making any claims about research and studies. Yeah, the good ones. 
Yeah. Yeah. But on the other hand, there are books like Your Brain on Music and the uh, Altered Traits. I think it's Daniel Coleman with his co-writer in Altered Traits. And they talk about pretty confidently about how music and meditation in some cases uh, strengthen the corpus callosum, mm-hmm. which connects the right hemisphere to the left hemisphere, or strengthens connections between the prefrontal cortex and the brain stem. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. It's interesting because when you read these books, they seem uh, pretty sure about you know those facts, and then when you talk to people like yourself, you're more uh, <laughs> cautious. <shall I> say. <laughs> well, I know two of those authors. Um, you know, I know Daniel Levitin, uh, not really well, but we've interacted before. He's a graduate at the University of Oregon and we've kept in touch and I love his books and use them. I, yeah. You know, I, I, I wouldn't say that everything in there, I, I wouldn't be as certain of some of the statements made in that book as he was, but again, you know, he has more experience in that area. Um, and I think there's probably some room for disagreement uh, in terms of how certain we are that certain things happen because of music rather than because of something else. I mean, there's a lot of things that strengthen the corpus callosum, right? Existing does, right? The connect- <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, thinking about something, you know, integrating the, the mind. Uh, that's what I mean by, you know, we don't really, it's a different thing to talk about things that, that we notice happening in the brain when certain activities are going on in an fMRI or in an EEG versus what happens in real life and the actual embeddedness of the embodied embedded uh, nature of our reality, right? We're in an environment with people with a multiplicity of factors that affect us. And, you know, I have respect for that. I just wonder sometimes how much of that transfers outside the lab into real life situations. And of course you can't do that, right? You can't hook an fMRI up to somebody and put them out in society and hope that you get learn something because there's too many variables involved. What's fascinating to me, Richard, is just this relationship between the mind and the brain. And I'm one of those weirdos that falls into the uh, the camp of I am less and less convinced that consciousness or the mind, the way that we talk about it, experience is a function of the brain, uh, that the brain causes that. I'm much more convinced that there's something mysterious going on here. I'm not saying metaphysical necessarily, but just more mysterious and that we know that the brain relates to consciousness and to experience and to all these wonderful things that we do, make music, dance, walk, cook, whatever. But I'm, I'm not ready to make that leap. And I think where I stand right now, based on my understanding and what I read is there's a relationship there, but let's not reduce one to the other. Let's not do that. Yeah, I love you brought up mystery there. And that brings us back to the don't know mind. Yeah. Because the don't know mind recognizes that uh, sometimes in Zen it's called the great matter. Yes, the great matter. Or the mystery. We know, you know, it's like the cosmic horizon. You know, that's that's the limitation of what we can perceive out there in the universe. We know there's something there, but we don't know what it is. Right. Right. Again, I'm quoting Bob Dylan, you know something's happening, but you (laughs) don't don't know know what what it is. is. So I agree, by the way that um, it's a two-way street between the mind and the brain. The mind can shape the brain, and the brain can have an effect on the mind. It's a communication there between the two. And also, I happen to believe in panpsychism or the fact that consciousness is universal. Yeah. Um, But that's a whole other story. (laughs) But but that comes from meditation, non-dualistic conceptions, et cetera. Yeah. So I love it. We're back in Zen. <laughs> no, it's it's not every day you get to speak to a Zen musician who's a professor. <laughs> and I, I want to know in your case, in, sure. in my case, 
Zen, when I first started to get interested in it, Zen was uh, just coming out really in the Western world with D.T. Suzuki and Alan Watts. Mm -hmm. And it was very different than now. And I'm just wondering what attracted you to Zen? I mean, one of the mm. things that attracted me, besides the fact that the books I was reading was Zen has art and poetry and above all else, a sense of humor. Yes. <laughs> to me, Zen is like the three stooges of spirituality. <laughs> well, the Zen masters, they use humor a lot. I, I agree with you. So talk a little bit about the role of humor in Zen and how it relates First of all, to Zen itself and how it could apply to us now that we're living in, in this tough crunch. What a great point to bring up. Um, you know, so, so part of my tradition um, is to study koans. I'm a, a eventual, hopefully, Dharma heir to Maizumi Roshi and the folks who, you know, who are in the lineage of the LA Zen Center. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my teacher can trace his lineage back to Bernie Glassman, who the infamous Zen master who put a clown nose on when people got too serious. I don't know if you know that story, but uh, Bernie would, um, during talks or during discussions with his students, when everybody started getting a little too hyped up, he'd put a clown nose on to remind all of us that we're we're clowns. I mean, we, right. we're pretending, we, you know, we, we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. So I studied koans, uh, you know, these cases for those that don't know, you know, koans are just stories. They're Zen lore, but they're used as a teaching tool. And, and part of what you're supposed to do is sort of engage with the koan, uh, take, you know, you almost do role-playing. You put yourself in the position of these different masters, perspectives, situations, and you relate them to your life and you give an answer. And what I find is that they're all, I mean, the majority of them are hilarious. I mean, uh -huh. you cannot stop laughing at imagining these monks just cutting up, picking on each other. Now, part of this is cultural. A lot of this, you know, it comes from, from what we might imagine uh, Chinese culture might have been when these koans were created. But I'm going to go with you. I actually find that, you know, humor is part of the human condition. And, it, and in Zen, everything is included. There's nothing that's left out. You know, we don't leave anything out. Um, and, and humor, I think, is a great indication that someone has come to terms with, you know, <laughs> I don't mean to say this, it's going to sound negative, the absurdity of, this, of the situation. Uh -huh. I mean, this is absurd. Here's this creature that, you know, comes alive, becomes self-aware, and then becomes attached to things that it can't sustain and lives an entire life trying to manage that and figure it out. I mean, it's a cruel joke in many ways, or it's a beautiful opportunity if you see it as a joke, right? I mean, I love that Zen masters did not take themselves seriously when I read those first books. So like you, I was attracted to the lightheartedness of certain Zen traditions. I mean, there, there's some that are a little more serious than others. Um, but you know, the ability to laugh at yourself and in a situation, oh my goodness, is there better medicine? Right. <laughs> you know, is there better? Is there a better way to? I mean, sometimes you just have to laugh. And so, by the way, Richard, I, I just wrote a blog uh, for my institute. I run a mindfulness institute, and sometimes I blog on there. And and the blog is up. It's on draft, and it says how I'm getting through the pandemic. And the first thing it says is humor. Basically, I am just laughing uh, a lot more. And that this doesn't preclude me from feeling terrified or sad or angry. It's just that laughter is certainly an option here for some things because things are falling apart. Um, and, you know, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, my meal, you know, I was terrified of going to the grocery store, missing things. You know, my meal was essentially chicken nuggets and Oreos. I mean, I mean, they were delicious. Don't get me wrong, but 
I, just the fact that I, I just laughed at sitting on the couch with a bowl of chicken nuggets. And, and, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good, man. Oh, man, it was. <laughs> Those Oreos are tempting. So, yeah, I agree. I think uh, Zen is a lot about humor, for sure. Yeah, I mean, the answer to the Cohen sometimes is the master slaps the student in the face. Or, you know, he puts sandals on his head and walks out of the tent. Yep. Yeah, yeah and, and does all this stuff. Can you, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I'm going to sure. put you on the spot. <laughs> Go ahead. The, talk about these stories. Do yeah. you have one that illustrates or just a one of your favorite story, Zen story? You know, one that I've been thinking of a lot. I mean, it's not funny, I don't think, but it's, but, but it, it is like, Maybe it is. Maybe it is funny. It's the the Nan In uh, story, um, and so Nan In was a, a Zen master who lived in the Meiji era from 1868 to 1912, and you know there's that story where a professor comes to visit Nan In, right? And and he serves uh, serves a professor a cup of tea, and you know and, and you know he's pouring the pouring the tea, and the professor's cup becomes full. And he keeps pouring and pouring and pouring and the professor just looks at it overflow and he can't contain himself anymore. And he's like, it is overfull. No more will go in, right? You've, 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 you've filled this up. And by the way, there's so many koans like this where, where somebody comes to visit a master and the master does something ridiculous, you know, that you're like, why would you do that? And, you know, the, the, the punchline is pretty, it's is one of the easiest koans to understand in a way, right? You know, not in turns to the professor and he tells him, you know. You're like this cup. You're too full of your own opinions and you know and ideas. You already know everything, right? How can I show you Zen unless you first empty your cup? And that one's really been spinning for me a lot because this is the ultimate death of expectation. I don't know what my job's going to look like in the fall. And if I, the more I try to pretend that I do and the more I plan, the more anxious I get. I really don't know. I don't know what my health is going to be like. I, I mean, goodness, some of us don't even know if we're going to have jobs in the fall, what our homes are going to look like, what society is going to look like. And so, you know, you can either over plan and freak out or you can just say, OK, let me empty my cup for a minute. Let me look at what's going on here. What if we were born and this is what our lives are like? We wouldn't know any different. <laughs> You know, uh, and I look at my daughter and I go, well, she's seven, right? You know, so she's experiencing this. At some point, this is going to be normal for her or mm -hmm. whatever normal is going to be, right? She'll have a, a different set of expectations. So anyway, I mean, it's a simple concept. I, I There's so many I can think of, um, but, but that one's just been kind of uh, uh, really circulating. By the way, it's also a really great metaphor. You know, as a professor, I'm supposed to be finding solutions for everything. <laughs> you know, well, there's so many task forces and so many, you know, and, and I belong to so many professional organizations and we're trying, but at the same time, we're all kind of, you know, we're, we're having conversations to keep ourselves sane, I think is, is probably the most direct effect of what's going on now, because we don't know, we don't know. And it's probably good for us to sit there and, and imagine what this might be like, if this is what it is. And I know that's scary, but you know. I don't plan on spending the rest of my life worrying about when we're going to go back to pre-coronavirus. I'm planning on spending the life that I have the best way that I can with whatever is here. Right. And, and it doesn't go back to the way it was. Oh, gosh, no. Nothing ever goes back to the way it does. <laughs> Hopefully it doesn't go back. There's a lot of inequality and uh, ignorance that hopefully gets corrected by this. But you mentioned that you were wondering about if you would have a job. Did I hear you right? Oh, well, I mean, yeah, I have a job for next year. I just got tenure uh, in, in April, uh, you know, which is, you know, a great, 
really nice achievement on some level. It's a mm -hmm. weird year to get it, um, but you know, you got, I got it. So, you know, that that's supposed to confer some kind of job security, but you know, I don't know right now <laughs> how many people are going to enroll at Indiana University next year. How many people are going to enroll in music? Um, you know, how many people are going to say, well, I don't really know what to do. Um, I, you know, I could pick music or I can pick coding and do it from home. Um, and we're making all sorts of predictions. I think my job is as secure as any job is going to be right now. But but I don't expect it to be there. Is sort of right. what I'm saying. I'm saying what would happen if it is not there in the fall, um, then I have to be prepared to provide for my family and do something meaningful with my life. Um, and, and I can't be uh, attached to the fact that I have very little control over that particular situation. That's great. I mean, you're managing expectations. Sure. That's one of the keys to staying sane and uh, happy, actually. Yeah. Managing expectations, understanding the locus of control, what you can't control. Yeah. And, uh, and that comes from different areas for, for me that came from mindfulness, right? From meditation. Absolutely. Yeah. Understanding what you can't control and managing your expectations. Um, how do you feel about the online movement towards uh, in education, everything moving mm -hmm. online for now? For, so uh, man, I mean, yeah. I mean, now it's moving online, but apparently it's going to continue. How do you feel about that? Good and bad. Yeah, it's, it's exactly what we were talking about before. On the one hand, I'm having to be a lot more creative and think much more deliberately about how I teach students to keep them engaged. I'm engaging with different kind of resources and engaging them in different processes, thinking about music a little differently. On the other hand, you know, I am one of those people who um, doesn't believe that a simulacrum of experience offers us the richness of what we have access to as human beings. So, you know, to me, a classroom, right, is a smelling, movement-based, aesthetic, interactional, three-dimensional, whatever. It's, it's a fully enriching experience with, with a performative aspect, with a community aspect. So we're going to lose that, at least temporarily, perhaps permanently in some cases. I don't know. Um, so I'm, I'm sad about losing that for a while because I know that that cannot be reproduced online. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's some cool things here that I enjoy that I'm looking forward to. Um, you know, if we can put some of these classes online, it certainly opens up possibilities for my students and myself to uh, manage our time differently. It gives us more flexibility, you know, asynchronous, synchronous kind of learning. You know, think of people with disabilities or people who don't have the opportunity to come to school, uh, you know, show up face to face. Um, this is a nice opportunity to provide, if we do it right, to provide people who don't typically have access to college or classes like ours with right. a, a way of, of being a part of these communities, even if it's remotely. So like anything else, I hope to God it doesn't replace face-to-face -face teaching. I don't think it is. I think we're experiencing how much we took that for granted. Um, I think we're, I think my sense is we're mm. really going to want to go back and, and really interact with each other face-to-face. -face. I know I miss it. I know I miss my students and I know they're okay for a while, but at the same time, I hope some of it doesn't go away because there are elements of this that I really, really like. I don't so know. what do you tell your students, I'm sure that this happens, that come to you looking for advice, they're full of anxiety about the future? Fear. <laughs> well, I mean, I just taught a face-to-face -face and online mindfulness class that ended in the spring with 57 students. So to me, it was every week was talking about this, right? And right. We, we talked about it every week. 
Yeah. It's very much a lot of what you were saying, you know, other than just working on techniques to bring your physiology down, you know, some breathing and, and focusing your mind so that your default mode network isn't out of control and spinning, you know, a lot of it has just been, you know, let's see what we have control over and let's see how we, how much choice we have over framing it and looking at it as an opportunity to, to do something different. And as long as you can not ignore the fact that you're anxious or the fact that you can't control or the things are going to be different or that there's some danger out there. I'm not saying ignore that, but the, but the fact that that other part of the experience is there and that you have some focus, you have some ability to focus on that. I think that's really critical. So it's really about reframing and refocusing on what you can do during this situation rather than what you can't do. And I, mean, I think that's pretty simple, but, but we know a lot of stuff gets in the way. That's why we practice meditation, right? because we know what our spinning minds can do and when we become attached to any of those little trains of thought um, about the future uh, or about the past, you know, it's very difficult to be here and, and, and in the moment. So uh, here's the other thing, Richard, just acknowledge that it's it sucks. Right. I try to be as honest as I can with my students, you know, and I'll say, yeah, a lot of this really sucks and you're sad and depressed and anxious and angry and you got to feel all that. That's part of being human. If you didn't have that, then my idea is that none of this was that important to you in the first place, right? Totally, (laughs) totally. I mean, I find that to be so helpful to say, yes, I feel anxiety, I feel fear. It's part of being human, exactly what you're saying. And to recognize that actually we are genetically engineered to feel these emotions of fear and anxiety because they protect us. Yes. They're like an alarm system. Uh, You know, fear is fuel for creativity and for protecting ourselves yep. uh, against dangers and if you don't feel it you could fall victim and that's why we we have these emotions they serve a purpose absolutely they've been part of our genetic makeup and the genetic makeup of the of the creatures we evolved from uh you know since there have been living beings right some level of responding to your environment is what makes you alive and if you don't have the sensory capacity to to do that or or functional capacity to do that then you die and, you know, we've been endowed with, genetically with one. <laughs> and if you want to look at it from an evolutionary standpoint, I don't think this is, you know, the thing that we are, because we, we do a lot of other things, but certainly surviving um, as human beings and staying out of danger is, is deeply embedded in our, in our DNA and in our, in our minds. Um, so and experiences. So how could we deny that? Yeah. Yeah, it's okay to be anxious. I hope so. Well, it's like the other thing. You know, oh, uh, you know, uh, are you not sad? You know, you're you're not attached. So if something happened to somebody, member of your family, does that mean you wouldn't be sad? And if that were the case, you know, I wouldn't want to practice this. You know, mm-hmm. of course I'm going to be sad. Of course I'm going to feel that. You know, and so that's part of it too. Uh, when you deny those forces, uh, they they transform into some pretty nasty things. And, yeah. Uh, you know, we have to we have to be mindful of that. Speaking about, you're a professor, so I, so I've been reading your scholarly uh, articles. Oh, I'm sorry, man. <laughs> and I need you. I'm going to give you a test. Do you give people tests? Uh, I, I'm I'm one of those people that rarely does that, but you can give me a test. <laughs> I never give tests. But yeah. you, I'm going to give a test to. So you mentioned mindfulness. Oh, wait, hold on a second. M A A S. Mindful Attention Awareness Scale. Yeah, yeah. What is a Mindful Attention Awareness Scale in your definition? Yeah. So there's this whole field of psychometrics. I don't know how familiar you are with that, but essentially, you know, it's a, it's a branch of sociology and really psychology. We assume that people have certain traits 
uh, latent sort of traits that can be measured through, you know, questionnaires um, and asking them, you know, if I ask you these five questions, you know, um, these 10 questions, uh, they're going to tell me something about how you feel about or how would you typically react to a particular situation, right? Or how you might act out in the world of behavior. And, you know, psychometrics is a field of looking at that data and seeing if there's some consistency in the way that you respond, right? So the MAAS is a mindfulness uh, scale that tells us whether we're dispositionally mindfulness. In other words, if you define mindfulness the way that they define it, which if I recall is, you know, sort of a present moment disposition an awareness, uh, um, you know, of, of, of being here and now, then, you know, the, this scale is supposed to tease that out. Like some people are just more mindful than others. Um, and the reason I like that scale, I mean, whether you agree, with, I do think it's a trait. I think some people are higher on that trait than others. Um, I think it can be developed also, you know, that, that, that's a different of thing. Course. But, you know, the way you, you, you test those scales, you know, the lay person's explanation of it is, you know, if it's truly a trait, you're going to be very consistent in how you answer those questions, no matter how I order them, no matter how often I give you that test. And there's going to be some reliability in your answers and what you're measuring in those scales might be a little different than other things. You know, it's distinct from something else. That's what I think they're talking about. It's not my scale. I didn't develop it, but I do think that it does tell me a little bit, at least about that being in the present moment aspect of mindfulness, which is not the only thing about mindfulness as both of us know. Right. You know, it's, that's, that's the, I think that's a cheap definition, not that they were trying to go for a cheap definition, but I think that's the factor that they were looking at there. So where can I find this test? Where can the listeners find this test? If you go to Google and just put positive psychology, mindful attention, awareness scale, there's going to be a link to the positive, positive psychology.com. Uh -huh. And it'll give you that skill. You can download it. It'll tell you about the reliability, the validity of it, if you're into that kind of stuff as a, as a researcher. And I do believe, yeah, um, you can score it. And people it. can take this test? And, oh, yeah. And, oh, this is great. Yeah, you can, you can look it up there. And, you uh, can take the test, and it'll tell you if you're mindful or you're... <laughs> well, at least, at least according to, to Brown and Ryan, right? Um, yeah, Brown I think and it, Ryan is the name of the company or uh, no, the researchers that, Research, that, looked, okay. that came up with it. Yeah, it's there and it tells you how to score it. I use this a lot with my students, um, in the mindfulness class. What I'll do sometimes is I'll give them practices and I'll see whether those scores shift over three or four practices and they can score them and they get an average and they kind of go, Oh yeah. Hey, this aspect of mindfulness is getting better. Now, technically I shouldn't be doing that with this because this is about, you know, Theoretically, if you've got a trait, it's not going to change that much. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, there are other skills that measure your day-to-day, -day you know, like whether you're mindful right now. And some of those are in my, in my work that probably that I sent you. But well, yeah, over time, you could develop traits. I agree. Theoretically, you could move on that mindfulness awareness scale, right? I mean, a trait is what? It's just a, a location, you know, a vector on, on, on some kind of theoretical space you know, that has all these qualities, mental qualities, that is co mostly consistent, right? And we say mostly because there's always some variance. There's always some deviation toward uh, one way or the other, right? But yeah, yeah. So that's great. That's, that's, that's interesting. I'm glad we got that 
I'm going to take that test. Do it. And every six months, see, <laughs> see like how blood- my mindfulness is either going up or down. It's like your blood pressure. <laughs> <laughs> but people can improve. So, I mean, I've seen it myself. I've seen it in other people. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, alter traits. I mean, there is such a thing as conditioning yourself to be in the world in a certain way. And, and it can change from what's more natural for your you know character. Absolutely. I mean, that's the whole premise of Dogen's, you know, work in Zen, right? The big debate in Zen Buddhism is, you know, if you're already enlightened, then why work on it? You know, the other part is, can you be suddenly enlightened or do you have mm-hmm. to work on it? And, you know, Dogen, who's the progenitor of my lineage, you know, basically said, yeah, we're already enlightened, but but you got to, you know, you got to figure that out. You got to work on it. The work is being able to see it so it can manifest in the world, right? And I think you can say the same thing about traits. Yeah, you got it in there, but you got to see it and you got to work on it. You got to bring it forth. Um, otherwise, what is it? Yeah, that's a that's a rough analogy. <laughs> yeah, Suzuki Roshi said, "You're perfect, but there's room for improvement." Absolutely. Yeah, that is correct. So I'm going to ask you another question. I'm going to test sure. you. You mentioned default mode network. In a few yeah. words, can you tell us what the default mode network is? Because it's very important that we know what it is. Sure. So I think anybody who's taken you know a class in brain science or psychology or something like that knows that we can sort of divide the mind and the brain into, you know, different, different sections, you know, so the default mode network, um, the, the, the reason this has become sort of a really important thing in meditation or talk about what it is, it's essentially four parts of the brain that are, you know, are assumed to work together, that they're connected during activity that we would call default activity Uh, or, you know, okay. So when I'm not trying to do anything at all, and I'm just sitting here and my mind starts to wander, right. We would say, we know that the default mode network is, is active during that. So what is it? It's uh, the medial prefrontal cortex, uh, the, the, the uh, amygdala, uh, the hippocampus, uh, you know, there's, there's, I'm missing one. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head what the other one is. It'll come to me in a minute. But essentially, these are all uh, parts of the brain that we know are associated with processing memories, emotions, the sense of self, prediction, right? So, you know, you can't have a self unless these things are working together because they're all involved in selfing. You know, they're sort of aggregating a sense of self for each individual. So the story goes that, um, you know, when we put people in fMRI, uh, what we know is that when they're sitting there in, in an fMRI and we're just sort of taking a baseline, that baseline is essentially their default mode network activity. So what we see is when they're sitting there, this, that's what's active. Those are the parts of the brain that are connected and active during those. And so when that happens, what do we know? Well, we know that significant activity in the default mode network is associated with anxiety and with other uh, psychological disorders and stress and other things that we generally do not want. Um, so the default mode network can be a negative thing if it's overactive, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. Fascinating. So the default network, usually if you're not focusing on an object or a task, so the default network will be, will fire into activity, right? It'll be Correct. triggered, right? Yeah. It's kind of like the, it's the baseline. Correct. And so it'll be either anticipating the future or, um, remembering the past mm-hmm. or selfing. Or selfing. Right. Thinking about myself and my fears and, you know, how things affect me. And yeah. And, and by the way, it's also a significant source of creativity, right? So we also know that when people are doing something creative, 
the default mode network is involved. And we also know that when people play music, the default network is involved. So my theory, and I think some other folks in, in neuroscience uh, are, are sort of speculating about this, is not that the default mode network in and of itself is bad or wrong. It's just that when it's overactive and it's overactive in a way that is producing negative emotions. In other words, it's reminding you of a past that you no longer can control that was negative. It's anticipating a future that you have no control over or that you anticipate to be, you know, you're ruminating or you're anxious or you're catastrophizing. You're going to have a sense of anxiety or a sense of malaise if it's overactive. But I imagine that for some people when the default mode network is on, if, you know, if all of those are positive associations, <laughs> you're probably <laughs> fine. I think narcissists probably enjoy being in the default mode network. Everything looks rosy from the past and into the future. Oh, boy. <laughs> but then they have, I mean, certain narcissists that are famous that we know, they have a lot of problems, uh, <laughs> resentments and grievances. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know how attractive the, the narcissist <laughs> default network is. I don't know if I ever told you, but that was one of the interesting findings in, in, in a study that I had. There's this quality of perfectionism. We looked at perfectionism in musicians and, uh, you know, there's other directed perfectionism. There's self-directed and there's a sort of uh, social perfectionism. And, you know, self-directed is pretty simple, right? We hold ourselves to a high standard, right? We won't go too far because it becomes, you know, maladaptive. And then there's a social sort of perfectionism where you're really worried that other people are going to judge you. So you become anxious and musicians are, are really high on this level of perfectionism. But my favorite is other directed perfectionism, because that one means you're holding other people to a high standard, but not yourself. Oh, so boy. you're inconsistent. Now, what's funny about that is that I was looking at the literature and that particular quality uh, is highly correlated with narcissism. <laughs> It's so, oh, that makes sense. So in my findings, I found, of course, that people that were more mindful dispositionally, the less you were socially uh, perfectionist and self-perfectionist. But we also found that very mindful people were also, or at least dispositionally mindfulness correlated very highly with other directed perfectionism. So either meditate or become a narcissist, and I think you'll do a lot better. I mean, you'll feel a lot happier about your life, I think. That's so hard to believe. I yeah. don't know how they're defining mindful. If you're mindful, you're expecting perfectionism from other people and not yourself. No, 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 no. The, the traits just correlated on these scales. You know, there was a, an association. So if a person tended to be pretty high on a mindfulness, uh, on dispositional mindfulness, yeah. they also tended to be uh, somewhat uh, high on other directed perfectionism. Yeah, that's what I'm understanding. But I don't, I mean, understanding what you're saying, but... It's hard for me to understand how that can be accurate because mindfulness tells you that there's no such thing as perfection and to have compassion and empathy for people rather than judging them harshly. Yeah, your guess is as good as mine, man. I... <laughs> Actually, to be really fair, what we found was uh, mu music performance anxiety. Uh, was really the significant factor. So I, you know, oh, yeah. okay. So if you were, you know, there was some association there. I don't know that it was significant. I'm trying to remember in that study. There was some association though, enough to make me go, oh boy, what's going on here? Uh, but really what we found is a really strong relationship between low levels of music performance anxiety and other directed perfectionism, which makes sense. You know, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing great. You stink. Why should I worry? <laughs> Jeez. I will... <laughs> Who were the people that you were studying? Well, you stu know, there were music music students from all over the country, you know. Okay. Yeah. So they, they have high opinions of themselves, I guess. Well, some of them did. I mean, so, so, you know, everybody scored on these scales at some level. 
So, you know, we're just looking at associations between how you did on these scales, you know. Well, did you consider that somebody that wants to be a performing musician has some degree of self-regard? Otherwise, they wouldn't put themselves out there as performers. They'd rather be behind the scenes as composers or something yeah. else. Yeah, I, of course. Yeah, I think I think that was certainly one of the things that you have to think about. Yeah, that's the thing of the nature of these scales, right? They're trying to reduce a really complex set of phenomena into something really simple. And, you know, that's why we, you know, we look at these things theoretically and say, okay, well, what if we looked at these five qualities and see how they relate to each other? You know, and, and in this case, that was that was compelling. It makes sense on some level that low performance anxiety is related to other directed perfectionism and that maybe mindfulness, you know, was involved in that in some uh, on some level, or at least it carried that, you know, and, and remember, correlation is not causation, right? You know, correlation just and the quality of these scales, um, you know, I know that we used the, the Hewitt flat perfectionism scale, which has been validated uh, and used for a long time. And the MAAS and the, uh, I forgot what music performance anxiety scale we use, but all pretty good scales. A study does not truth make, right? You know, there, right. We, there's always something else to look at. But I did get a little chuckle just seeing that in the results. <laughs> Made me think a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So another thing I learned from you is this word. It's the first time I heard it was when you told me about it. It's de-reification. Yeah, good word. And uh, it doesn't sound that great, but <laughs> the but it is a great word, I have to admit. And can you, because I think it sums up a lot of stuff that's yeah. important. So can you define it for us again? Sure, yeah. I think it's easy to, to start with what it means without the D in front, right? So we, when we reify something, right, we give, it, we give it a sort of permanent quality, a realistic quality that it probably doesn't deserve, right? So de-reification, which someone in the – I have a friend who's a psychiatrist informed me this is a word that is common in the, or maybe emerges from the psychiatric community, but I haven't checked, verified that this is true. De-reification is the ability to see thoughts as just thoughts. Not, not becoming so attached to them as reality that they start to essentially feel like the thing being represented, their representations, right? The fun one that I like to use, and I stole this from um, John Dunn, who works at the Center for Healthy Minds. I saw him do it, and, I, and I've adapted it with a chocolate cake, but he does it with a strawberry. So he has people imagine a strawberry, right? You know, he says, oh, imagine the strawberry. He has them you know, think about putting a strawberry up to their mouths and you know, what happens, of course, is that people salivate when they think of a strawberry and they like strawberries. And then you de-reify it by, by saying, okay, where's the strawberry? Well, the minute you say that, you, you know, your mind realizes, oh, wait, that's not a real strawberry. That was a thought, right? Why am I salivating about a thought? And that's how powerful the mind is. Or you can just show them a picture of a strawberry and say, well, there's your strawberry. It's in your mind, right? And so, you know, mindfulness activates this process by allowing us to have a particular relationship with thoughts or experiences that are not in our intentional set, right? So what does that mean? Layperson's term is I, if I'm supposed to be noticing my breath and then noticing the environment around my breath or a sound or whatever, whatever comes into that environment, whether it be a thought or an impression or emotion, I can notice it. I can totally say, hey, there it is. But then most people follow it. Right? They, and they jump into a rabbit hole of, oh, what's interesting? And, they, and then they have a concomitant response. They become anxious if it's a negative thought or they get in a state of anticipation if it's a, you know, something they really want or they become restless. But if you can just notice it as a thought, a concept, an image in your mind, it tends to lose its power. 
And when you do can do that, you can go right back to whatever is it is that you were hoping to keep your uh, attention on. So yeah, that and non-judgmental or non-aversive affect are the two key ingredients in mindfulness that I think separate it from almost anything else. Yeah, de-reification de is, I, I love that you told me that word. And it's so, I, I mean, I'm going to use that as a mantra so I don't forget how to say it. <laughs> it's so important yeah. to realize that. But by the way, you had me like uh, a half hour ago on the couch with the Oreos salivating. <laughs> so, so I think I was done salivating when we got to the strawberries. I, I was thinking of the Oreos. <laughs> Yeah, if I, if I start thinking about those for a while, I'm going to start salivating too. <laughs> so I got one more question. That sure. I was, re I was reading and you wrote something and, it, and you wrote, this is a medial lateral trunk sway. Now, when I saw <laughs> medial lateral trunk sway, I thought, what's he, is this twerking he's talking about? <laughs> a trunk sway, medial lateral? A, what does that mean? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. I think what you're talking about is a study that I reviewed for an art, a chapter that's going to come out in the um, Oxford Handbook of Music Psychology Performance or something like that. So I think I was reviewing literature. And so one of the things, okay, so here's where that comes from. One of the things that I get asked all the time is, well, if I do mindfulness, is it going to help my technical skills as a musician, you know, and I always have a problem with that question because I'm like, that's not what it's for. But I can see that if you, you know, if you're less stressed out, and if you're more in the moment, uh, I don't know, maybe it will improve that. But we do know that some of the research being done in mindfulness and sports does show improvements in certain psychomotor skills. And one of those psychomotor skills that apparently improves is this medial lateral uh, trunk sway. Um, okay, so, so what's the best way that I can explain what this is? <laughs> As far as I understand it, it has something to do with like a gait, like how your gait works. Uh, okay. Um, and uh, so, so it's it's something to do with the gait. It has something to do with uh, knee, right? So you know, it's a biomechanical thing. Like you know, how well do you do you balance? What's your gait look like? Yeah, you know, we know there's some association between. Um, you know, certain cognitive or brain deficits and problems with, you know, gait or walking or timing or anticipation. So I, I believe that that's what this is about. I'd have to go back and read that article. And, and by the way, I mean, what I could, what I just said right now could be completely wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, you, we review a lot of literature as researchers and we put them in articles, uh, you know, and, and then some people, someone will ask us and we'll go, well, I think that's what that means, but I don't remember. <laughs> what the point of putting that in there was is that we felt like here's some evidence that mindfulness does affect a psychomotor process. And because psychomotor coordination is important in playing sports and of course in, in music as well. In music, yeah. Right. There has to there's there's likely some relationship here and it's worth talking about. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Oh, well, man, you caught me on that one. Well, you know what? I'm going to have some mercy on you because I was going to ask you about axiological framing of these practices. Oh, I can do that Our soteriological... <laughs> wait a second. Our soteriological in nature and this unsubsequent whatever. But I'm not going to ask you about that because I can't absorb all this information in one sitting. I'm still fascinated. I would like to have those students that you tested that had 
narcissistic tendencies, take the mass test and the M-A-A-S test <laughs> and see how mindful they really are. <laughs> and we should do it again for sure. <laughs> no, I mean, there's a lot of information, which is fantastic. I am going to take a look at the test, and it seems like something that I would tell my students about. Yeah. Of course, with de-reification and all the other things we talked about. But is there something... I mean, you and I could ramble on discursively ad infinitum, <laughs> but um, but I just want want to know: in is there before we close, is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't spoken about? Oh goodness, let's talk about your book. Can we talk about your book? Sure. Yeah. Wanna, okay, okay, we should have done that an hour ago. <laughs> well, I mean, I've got to say, I ordered this book before I went out to meet you, um, and uh, then didn't get there, and then I got home and and. You know, I was able to read it. What I love about this book, and I've been recommending it to my students, is is the fact that you flip this perspective a little bit. You know, I always start with what are the meditative practices and how how do you apply them to music, and then you know, eventually maybe you get to the point where you realize that music is is an object of meditation or meditation itself, depending upon how you approach it. But you start on the opposite end, right? You start with music right. as essentially meditation, and it's a bridge to mindfulness. Right. Um, and, and I just find that idea so compelling because for musicians, right, for, for the folks that I teach, some of them should be starting there, looking in, in, at their everyday lives and saying, what do I already do? Right. What, what kinds of things are already there in my experience and processes that, that lead to the state of mind that I may not know, may not have labeled that way. So, I mean, let's talk about that. I'm just curious, you know, I come at it from one, I think we're in an agreement and I looked at your I found all of the dimensions of mindfulness that I talk about in my particular framing of it in your book. Wow. They're, they're all you. in there. You know, to me, that was, hey, kudos, you know, some, somebody else thinks of it this way. And I think a lot of folks who meditate might think of these categorical sort of processes. How did you make these connections? What occurred to you to start there and go backwards? Well, I, I had some basis already in meditation, in Zazen and Zen culture and was always reading about, not always, but through decades, um, reading about it. I tried to meditate, so I had some foundation in there, but I lived my life as a musician. That's how I make my livelihood for four decades plus. And as a musician, you know, you need something to help you get through life and live with yourself. Mm. And, uh, on, on the tr and then you have a family and you have all these uh, competing responsibilities. And um, when my therapist recommended meditation, it just, it was like, you know, one of those, you talk about sudden enlightenment. It was one of those moments where I said, I know it's there. I don't know how it's there, but I know it's there and I got to find it. And then it all just came and like, like writing a symphony in one night, you know, they talk about Mozart and, you know, in an hour, it all comes to him. He can hear everything. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's pretty much what happened. It wasn't all in one night, but it was in a short period of time. All these years of experience of uh, being a, a musician and also knowing something about meditation, having had some experience with it, all came together. Hmm. Um, it just happened by itself at that point. So it's almost like it was, those ideas were, uh, were kind of incubating in a way, and then they just came together. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you could say that. Yeah. I was brought, I started playing music. My parents were very proactive in teaching me how to listen and how to identify instruments in the orchestra. They, they sensed that I had a affinity for that and they uh, pursued it. 
and oh. took me to to concerts and you know and then started playing music so music has always been like for you i'm sure it's your it's the air that you breathe yeah right it's just part of what you do exactly it's it's, it's part of who you are it's yeah. it, it's it's everything but it's not enough because you got to live your life when <laughs> yeah. the music stops and so it all came together after decades of struggle and uh, confusion and and study see and i find that fascinating right because you you're implying there by the way, not implying this is what happened, and I think it happens to a lot of us, is so much of what we do as human beings and our inspirations are essentially happening on, on some very deep level that we don't understand. They're not conceptual, right? So you can feed your your, your mind all these concepts, and, and then somewhere in there, some processing happens, and it all comes out one day. I'm not saying it's easy, or you, know, you got to birth an idea, right? But what a fascinating thing. And one thing that it reminds me of is I don't know how familiar you are with David Lynch's work. Mm -hmm. um, you I know, read I, his book. Oh, I love David. I, first of all, I'm just a, I'm a Twin Peaks fan and, and I love David and I think he's just brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but he talks about that aspect of meditation, right? As an artist where if you go deep enough, you start seeing some pretty interesting ideas, right? Mm -hmm. and we don't have access to that when we're stuck in the conceptual uh, mind or framing all the time. So, uh, you know, I, I feel like the way you came about doing that book is, uh, is exactly that. It's a lot of really interesting ideas sort of coalescing in your mind and then you having the opportunity to talk about them, which is one of the reasons I find it so refreshing. It does not feel in any way contrived to me, which I really enjoy. I have to say, sometimes I read meditation books and I think, boy, you're trying too hard. Mm. <laughs> or you don't really know what you're talking about. I don't feel like some people have experienced it, but it was really clear here that these are, these are real experiences for you that, that you had processed. So. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Thank you. For yeah, saying man. That. Thank of you. course. My pleasure. Well, the narcissist in me loves you. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad somebody loves me. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said before, we could ramble on discursively ad infinitum, and I love talking to you, and, and I hope you'll come back. Yeah, any time. It was a real pleasure being here, speaking with you. And uh, I look forward to our next encounter. Yes. And till then, I hope you stay in a higher octave and let's stay in tune, maybe. <laughs> All right, Richard. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you so much for doing this. Bye, doctor. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. All right. That was a stupendous conversation, in my opinion. And uh, this is the part that I tack on because I'm told to tack it on to ask for uh, people to subscribe, which everybody does that I listen to. And they say it really helps. I'm too new to this to, to know if that's true or not. I don't know if it helps, but they say and they tell me that it helps. So please subscribe. Please leave a rating. Please leave a review. Please tell your friends, people you shared masks with, whoever you think of uh, to listen to this podcast. I'd appreciate it. And uh, I need to thank you, my loyal listeners, number one, and the people that help put this together. First of all, Frank Diaz, of course. And um, Lonnie Rinaldo and Hannah Bowers, a.k.a. The Hannah Bowers. So thank you, everybody. And um, I hope you are able to stay safely up in a higher octave. And let's you and I stay in tune.